Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Wednesday, July 17th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, who's in the July debates? How the candidates spent their Q2 money? Will Democrats benefit from high turnout in 2020? Harris's plan for domestic workers? Trump gets another possible primary challenger? Bullock makes his pitch on hardball? And a few important dates to mark on your calendar. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, the DNC announced which candidates had qualified for the July debates. There were no surprises there, given that there were 21 qualified candidates vying for 20 spots. And the tiebreaking rules had already established that former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel would not win the tiebreaker. So here's the list of who will be on stage, though this is not an order of appearance, as that has not yet been determined. Bennett, Biden, Booker, Bullock, Buttigieg, Castro, de Blasio, Delaney, Gabbard, Gillibrand, Harris, Hickenlooper, Inslee, Klobuchar, O'Rourke, Ryan, Sanders, Warren, Williamson, and Yang. This is exactly the same list that appeared in the June debates, except Swalwell dropped out and has been replaced by Bullock. Now, in addition to Gravel not making the cut, Sestak and Steyer are late entrants and don't meet the polling or donor thresholds yet. Messam and Moulton also have not gotten there, despite being in the race a good bit longer. All right, so the lineup is set, but the placement on which nights and the candidates' locations on stage will be determined on Thursday night in what CNN is promoting as The Draw. When I saw the commercial for this, it literally made me spit out my coffee. So please swallow now and listen to this nonsense. Who will face off in the next Democratic debates? Two nights, 10 candidates each night. Watch the lineup take shape in an unprecedented live event. The draw for the CNN Democratic debates. Thursday night, July 18th, only on CNN. All right, CNN. Look, I have prepared a spot for you just in case that one isn't working for you. Here goes. In a world where somebody draws names out of boxes or something on CNN, live this Thursday night for some reason, whose names will it be? Well, it'll be the same names as last time except for Bullock and Swalwell, but in a different order with very minor changes. Tune in or you'll miss out. Yesterday, we talked a whole bunch about who had brought in how much money and the fact that essentially everybody is spending a whole lot of that money. In many cases, candidates are outspending what they're raising, and this raises a natural question. What are they spending all that money on? Well, over at 538, Carrie Levine of the Center for Public Integrity addressed exactly that topic. Here are two of her opening paragraphs. Quote, Although the massive Democratic primary field has collectively raised $277 million so far, almost three-fifths of that money flowed into the coffers of only five campaigns, according to new filings with the Federal Election Commission. What that means, a few top candidates are racing to expand their campaign staff and advertising budgets. Most of the rest will pour their dwindling resources into crossing the Democratic Party's fundraising thresholds for debate participation, or simply paying their bills. End quote. 
Levine further mentions that, oh, by the way, President Trump has raised about $135 million for this race so far, which is a nice stack of money ready to deploy against whomever he faces in the general. Anyway, back to how these candidates are spending. The key thing most candidates are spending money on is acquiring donors. The September debates require a donor base of 130,000 people, including 400 donors in each of 20 states. Only eight of the candidates have already passed that threshold, so every other campaign is trying super hard to get people to give them some money. Because of the DNC rules, they just need one dollar, but the cost of acquiring even a one dollar donor can be extremely high. It is far more than one dollar per donor. So let's take one example. Representative Tulsi Gabbard has $2.4 million in cash on hand, at least as of Monday's FEC report. Gabbard currently needs 28,678 more donors to hit the DNC threshold. If it costs her, let's say, $25 to acquire each donor via advertising or other means, that total cost is more than $700,000, or about a third of her cash. And that doesn't even begin to solve her problem of getting better poll results during the same period, which likely requires a mix of even more advertising and a standout debate performance later this month. Plus, she still has to pay her campaign staff and, you know, eat and travel and all that stuff. So that's largely what the candidates who don't yet meet the DNC threshold are doing. They are drumming up donors and overall awareness through advertising. The candidates who have already met the threshold are spending heavily on their ground game, hiring staff in key states. Reading again from 538, quote, Campaign finance reports show Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts spent about $1 out of every $3 her campaign raised during the year's second quarter on salary and payroll expenses for her roughly 300 staff members, end quote. So that's it. A ton of your donation money goes to advertising and staffers. Next up, a pair of stories, one in the New York Times by Nate Cohn, the other in New York Magazine by Ed Kilgore, examine the issue of voter turnout. Now, in the 2018 midterms, Democrats saw a so-called blue wave in which massive voter turnout gave the party a boost in a bunch of elections. We expect high turnout again in the 2020 election, but there is an open question. Which party will benefit from that the most? Let's read first from the Times. Quote, It is commonly assumed that Democrats benefit from higher turnout because young and non-white and low-income voters are overrepresented among non-voters. And for decades, polls have shown that Democrats do better among all adults than among all registered voters, and better among all registered voters than among all actual voters. But this long-standing pattern has become more complicated in the Trump years. The president is strong among less educated white voters who are also overrepresented among non-voters. And Democrats already banked many of the rewards of higher turnout in the midterm elections, when the party out of power typically enjoys a turnout advantage and did so yet again. End quote. So Cohn is essentially saying the Democrats have a problem because the Trump voting base didn't show up at the ballot box as much in 2018, but they probably will in 2020 because, you know, Trump will actually be on the ticket. Plus, the classic Democratic base is actually shifting somewhat toward Trump. Cohn also points out that Democrats need to reach a key group that might be hard to get, people who aren't registered at all or who are but simply haven't voted lately. This is a theme in the Democratic ground game in general and expected to get far more intense as we get closer to the general election. 
Democrats will spend incredible energy and money to get people registered and then get them to the polls. If that happens, it is by no means a lock that Democrats will somehow magically automatically win, because just because you help to register somebody doesn't mean they will vote with you. Meanwhile, at New York Magazine, Ed Kilgore wrote about high turnout in 2018 and referenced the Times article I just quoted. Quoting Kilgore here, quote, If Democrats can match those patterns in 2020, victory should be relatively easy. But another way to look at it is that Republicans may have a larger pool of presidential voters who stayed home in 2018 than do Democrats, which is unusual, but hardly impossible. That is essentially what Nate Cohn found in a new analysis of what a high turnout presidential election in 2020 might look like. End quote. And I'll leave you here with Kilgore's conclusion. Quote, Since time immemorial, ideologues on both the left and the right have asserted as a matter of quasi-religious faith that some hidden majority favor their prescriptions, with tens of millions of citizens refusing to vote because the radicalism they crave has been withheld by establishment centrists. In 2020, though, the stakes are higher than ever if Democrats are wrong about relying on the intensity of voter enthusiasm. It would be smart for them to have a backup plan. End quote. The Election Ride Home is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Look, if you've ever had to hire somebody to work at your company, you know what a tough process that is. You gotta dig around and find all the job boards and sign up for all this different stuff. And then when the resumes start coming in, they're all over the place. You know, some people might be qualified, but you got some folks who really aren't a match. It's a mess. But what if I told you there was a single website that would make the hiring process simple, fast, and smart? Well, that's ZipRecruiter.com primary. ZipRecruiter sends your job posting to over a hundred of the web's leading jobs boards so you don't have to go through them all yourself. But the service doesn't stop there. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a match. That matching technology helps you find the right fit. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, Election Ride home listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash primary. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash P-R-I-M-A-R-Y. One last time, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash primary. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The Election Ride Home is sponsored by a great podcast called The Meb Faber Show. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the top five investing podcasts you should not miss. If you're looking to learn from the brightest minds in finance, or you simply want to know more about investing in a casual and fun interview format, it's a must-listen. The show is hosted by Meb Faber, CEO of Cambria Investments, and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of his show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you investing insights and ideas. Check out The Meb Faber Show wherever you enjoy your podcast, that's Meb, M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. You don't want to miss it. On Monday, Senator Kamala Harris, along with Representative Pramila Jayapal in the House, introduced legislation known as the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. If you're not familiar with the phrase domestic worker, those jobs include things like house cleaners, nannies, home health care workers, and more. And right now, they don't get the same kind of benefits that other Americans do. Reading from a press release by the National Domestic Workers Alliance, quote, Every day, over 2 million nannies, home care workers, and house cleaners clean and care for America's homes and families. And yet, neither their jobs nor their livelihoods are protected under many national or state employment laws. 
Since the passage of laws governing workplaces, such as the Fair Standards Labor Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, or the OSH Act, domestic workers have been excluded by design or by default from basic workers' protections, including occupational and safety regulations, fair labor standards, the right to organize, and anti-discrimination protections, in large part because of the employee thresholds for coverage that were created under these laws. End quote. And here's more from Harris in the same press release. Quote, Domestic workers are one of the fastest-growing workforces in our country. They provide essential care to aging parents, children, homes, and more. However, our nation's domestic workers have not been afforded the same rights and benefits as nearly every other worker, and it's time we change that. End quote. Now, the legislation would do three key things. I'm going to read here from Harris's one-page summary of the bill. The Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights Act, quote, includes domestic workers in common workplace rights and protections like paid overtime, safe and healthy working conditions, and freedom from workplace harassment and discrimination, creates new rights and protections that address the unique challenges of domestic work, such as written contracts, affordable health care and retirement benefits, fair scheduling, support for survivors of sexual harassment, and grants for workforce training, and ensures that rights aren't just on paper, but that they can be enforced and implemented. Know your rights information, mechanisms to prevent retaliation, a confidential hotline, an emergency access tool to address harassment, affordability for Medicaid consumers, and a worker and employer-led federal task force. End quote. The bill has a total of 27 co-sponsors in the House, plus five in the Senate, who happen to be named Booker, Gillibrand, Klobuchar, Sanders, and Warren. There is not yet a CBO estimate for the cost of this legislation, though we will see what that might be over the coming months. Here's a quick one. President Trump currently faces one actual Republican primary challenger, Bill Weld. Another man is currently considering joining the fray. He is Mark Sanford, a former representative from South Carolina. In an interview on Tuesday with the Post and Courier, Sanford said, quote, Sometimes in life you've got to say what you've got to say, whether there's an audience or not for that message. I feel convicted. End quote. Even if he makes the run official, Sanford faces slim odds because of state-level rules around primaries and caucuses. Reading again from the Post and Courier, quote, Republicans in South Carolina would have to agree to hold a primary for Sanford to be on the ballot. But the path is much easier for Sanford to be considered in Iowa, which holds an open caucus, and New Hampshire, where there's just a $1,000 filing fee to get on the 2020 GOP ballot. End quote. So add Sanford to the list of potential Trump challengers who haven't quite announced yet, along with independent Justin Amash. Yesterday on Hardball with Chris Matthews, Montana Governor Steve Bullock was asked to make his pitch. And I figured, what the heck, let's play that audio here. As a reminder, Bullock is the new face we will see in the July debates replacing Swalwell. So make your pitch. Yeah. President of the United States, why you? Look, the economy's not working for most folks. They look at the political system for relief. It's captured by the money. I'm the only one in this field that won in a Trump state. If we're going to win in 2016, we not only have to bring out our base, but we got to win back places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. I can do that. 25 to 30 percent of my voters voted for Donald Trump. I think people are also hungry to believe the government can work. My whole time I've been in office, 
had a majority Republican legislature. Even with that legislature, we've been able to get good things done, like expanding health care to 100,000 Montanans, record investments in education, freezing college tuition, kicking dark money out of our elections. You're great on that. By the way, if you only get that done, I've watched that documentary. And we need to do that. No, getting rid of dark money, I think at the root of so much evil in politics. Thank you so much, Governor. By the way, the documentary Matthews mentions there at the end is called Dark Money, directed by Kimberly Reed, and it focuses on Montana, which is obviously a big deal for Bullock. There's a link in the show notes to the film's homepage, which itself has links to where you can stream the film online. And last up today, a few things to mark on your calendar as we look forward to this month and September and beyond. Now, first up, the July debates. Those will be held on July 30th and 31st. That is a Tuesday and Wednesday this time. And yes, we will be doing debate bingo, and I'll be on Twitter during those, just like in June. Stay tuned for more bingo details probably next week. Next up, the September debates. Those are scheduled for September 12th and maybe 13th, which are a Thursday and Friday. And then finally, a milestone that I missed over the weekend. We are now less than one year out from the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee. That will span July 13th through 16th, 2020, meaning that we will have a nominee in less than a year. I've been waiting a long time to say that, and although it's still very early in this primary process, it is good to know that we are at least within the final year of this primary. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Okay, we are right in the middle of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, and I'm kind of a space nerd, so I've been watching as people celebrate this and dig up old footage. One of the big treats for me has been a four and a half hour chunk of live coverage from CBS News uploaded yesterday to YouTube covering the Apollo 11 launch. It's really fun to watch, and I don't want to spoil a surprise or anything, but near the end, LBJ stopped by to chat with Walter Cronkite, and he does talk about things like partisan politics. If you're curious, that's the last link in today's show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.